0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 80. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Normally, this is the show where I share my fiction with you, but sometimes I like to mix it up by bringing in other cool people to talk about the things they're working on, as well as the craft and business of writing. One such cool person is fellow author and podcaster A.F. Grappin, also known to friends as Gus. I interviewed Gus back in September about their new novella, which is titled Luke Bertrand, Assassin's Victim. I'm going to play the interview now, and after that, I'll come back and talk about my writing this week, and discuss some feedback on Things Unseen. So, without further ado, here's my interview with A.F. Grappin. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Raven in the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. I'm here in the virtual studio today with author and podcaster A.F. Grappin. Hi, Gus. Hi, hey, Chris. So Gus is just about to, or are you just about to release, or have you already released your new book? It's available for
1: pre-order. Official release dates the 26th.
0: Okay. So why don't we start out, Gus, by having you tell us about your new book and what it's about.
1: Uh, Yeah, this is the first of a novella series. It's called Luke Bertrand, Assassin's Victim. This is a spin-off of John Walker's The Statford Chronicles. Uh, He asked me to write the backstory of one of his secondary characters who is in the books the head of assassins for the East Coast of the United States. So this is the very beginning showing how he gets on the path to becoming an assassin in the first place. But it is set in France because that is where he is originally from. Um, So you get to see what kind of trauma he goes through and how he goes from being victimized by an assassin to becoming one himself.
0: If you're victimized by an assassin, doesn't that mean you're dead?
1: Not necessarily. You can be victimized in more ways than actually being assassinated.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: Yeah. Um, I I, I did consider calling it Assassin's Target, but I was like, nah, let's go worse than that. (laughs) So lay this
0: out for us. What kind of a world is this? Is this magical, you know, like urban fantasy, magical realism? Is this straight up action thriller? What's going on?
1: The original series, The Stafford Chronicles, is very much urban fantasy. It's uh, the main character, uh, Tom Stafford, is the private detective to the gods. So we see everyone from Zeus to um, some of the like the Chinese mythological deities. We've seen. Um, valkyrie i mean we've seen like all he's done so much research into different mythos and getting all these different gods involved so this is set in a world where the gods do actually speak with people but luke actually does not deal with any of that so this particular spinoff is very much more just urban adventure almost it's a little more actiony okay without without the without the mystic to it
0: so magic does exist in this world but it's on the margins enough that it doesn't have to show up in this particular story
1: yeah yeah it's not really going to there there's it does lie in the very deep background but luke is pretty oblivious to it for a long time what we're focusing more is just how to become an assassin as opposed to dealing with the gods themselves
0: You say we, did uh, you and John collaborate on the development of the plot or did you come up with this on your own?
1: What actually happened is about a year and a half ago, John approached me asking me just to write a short story about Luke. And I was asking for details and he says, no, I'm just gonna let you run with it. And if there's anything that doesn't fit. Then we'll fix it. So he's been giving me free reign, and that's pretty much what happened initially when he asked me to write the novella series instead. He fell in love with the story that much. He's like, yeah, I need more. So we've collaborated some on uh, the overarching story of Tom Statford, how Luke fits into that. And so I'm basically just building up to that point because this series takes place at least two decades before the first book of the Statford Chronicles. Because Luke is in his thirties at that point. And in this first book, he's just turned 15. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's prequels, prequel spinoff.
0: <laughs> what is it like writing a, a a story like that, you know, where you know where the ending is, but you don't have any direction on where it starts or how it gets
1: there? It was actually I have I don't want to say I had trouble with endings, but endings are very difficult for me. So having that point where – because I've got seven novellas planned right now, and the seventh one is where he actually finally meets Tom. There's a small spoiler, but, you know, this is Luke's story. We don't care about Tom. Mm-hmm. So actually knowing where things go once he knows who Tom is in the first book of the Stafford Chronicles can get kind of gave me a beacon to aim for. And I was able to work backwards from there instead of just kind of starting in nowhere and working forwards. I've actually found it very liberating it is daunting that I don't know the world as well as John does, obviously. I mean, I've read all the books, but I still, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Statford verse. So I'm constantly sending him chapters and being like, does, does this work? Does this work? But he keeps on coming back with all this. Oh my gosh. I never thought of that feedback. Ooh. So it's sort of, turning into a collaborative thing. And he actually admitted to me and John, sorry if I'm letting loose a secret, but Luke was never meant to be that big of a character in the Statford Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've I've had that effect on the series that kind of makes me smile.
0: So how did the partnership get started? Like, did you just fall in love with this character and say, you know, I really want to know more about this this character's story or like if it wasn't that Im- important of a character until you got your hands on him how how did you end up writing a novel or a novella about him
1: when i first started reading the stafford chronicles luke just became my favorite character i've always had a soft spot for the lesser known i mean everybody likes the hero everybody Mm -hmm. loves the villain but luke was is in so many ways an unknown, especially in the very first book. He had a very small role in the first book, but he was so intriguing because number one, he was a, fr- uh, a Frenchman living in Virginia. Mm. Um, he is, you know, an assassin who runs a club who has all this knowledge and hates Tom, hates the man. But as the series went on, he grew, just in these little tiny bits and pieces where you see him, and he—I mean—he was just my favorite, hands down. So John knew that. And so when he was looking for um, short stories based on the side characters, he approached me and he's like, yeah, I want you to write on Luke. And I'm like, are you sure? But he, like I said, he's fallen in love with it. I mean, I I never would have thought of doing this. He's the one that approached me, uh, which extremely, extremely daunting. (laughs) I'm like, I'm I'm flattered. Can I, can I do it? I'm not that good of a writer, (laughs) but he disagrees.
0: But you've had other books that were released before this, right?
1: I've got um, three uh, books out right now. It's actually been a while since I've published anything, so this kind of broke my drought. Um, My first uh, science fiction, fantasy, young adult crossover, *Impedigo*, I released back in 2010. And then Mere Acquaintances, which is a, that was a project unto itself, but it was a science or a fantasy kind of alternate reality kind of uh, book. And that one I would, intentionally released for free because it's unedited Mm. that was the point of it i actually got all these ideas from all my friends all over facebook and everything they named the name they named the characters they gave me basic ideas that they wanted to see a novel about and i took as many of them as i could and put them together and i was releasing a chapter a week so it was kind of like um, Christian Ellis's Phyllis Esposito. Just every, you can't go back and change stuff because it's already been publicized. So that one is intentionally released for free, so you can actually get that one pretty much anywhere. And then that was also in 2010. And then my epic poem, The Trials of Hell, like I released in 2011, which I'm working on getting that out in ebooks right now. But yeah, so those are the only books I've had out before now. I have had a couple of short stories out in podcasts and a couple anthologies, but this is my first novella what was
0: the most rewarding thing about writing in somebody else's universe and what was the most difficult thing about it
1: i really like that i don't have to come up with character details as much i mean luke's description is already set his personality is very set i mean yeah i'm getting to develop the man he becomes he comes into but i've got so much i can reference But it's like, I've got this great resource in John and in his editor, Erica, because, I mean, they know the universe. So if I've ever got a question, I can go to them. One of the hard parts is that being American and not having traveled any farther than, you know, the continental U.S., I have no idea what Europe is like, and I'm writing in France. I'm writing uh, Paris, Madrid. I've gone to Madrid. I'm going to be going to either Ireland or Germany at some point in this series, and I'm not sure which (laughs) yet. So I've got to do like all this weird research. I found myself researching for not the first novella, but for the third one, the Madrid subway. Just, I'm finding myself doing all this weird stuff. I'm like, I want to be writing, but I need this information to write. So that that's actually been weirder than doing anything in the shared world because this is so far set from the main series. I do get a lot of freedom, but I do get a lot of constraints because I have to make sure that I don't do anything that's going to ruin the world before John does.
0: <laughs> no sense. breaking the world.
1: I can't. I don't get to break anything yet. <laughs>
0: Do you have access to like a story Bible or a wiki or anything like that for um, um the, for this
1: universe? As far as I know, there. If John has one, uh, he hasn't shared it with me. But I mean, I've got the books. Like I said, I've I've I'm good friends with John. I can private message him anytime and just say hey this, <laughs> or I can uh, like I said, I can talk to his editor who knows the world at least as good as he does. So I've I've kind of got live resources there as opposed to a Bible, but. But like I said, the series happened so far before the actual Stafford Chronicles that I don't really have to reference a whole lot of details in that. I've, I, we have had a couple incidents where I can go, oh, this can kind of hint towards something that Luke does in the third book. It's like, that's where he gets that behavior. But it's I'm not having that kind of constraints with this project, fortunately. It's not like as if I were writing in, you know, say like the Dungeons and Dragons universe where, you know, mm-hmm. set things happen and I have to make sure I'm not messing with those events or anything. It's cause I'm getting a very loose leash here. Mm-hmm.
0: But at the same time, this world is enough like ours that you are constrained by real world history and events.
1: Yeah. And especially because, like I said, re- researching the subway, I'm up to 1997 at this point. So, yeah, I can find all these pictures of what the Madrid subway looks like. Twenty years ago, that's a little bit harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, just it being, you know, our world basically, just with you know, some supernatural stuff peppered in it. I I've got a lot of, you know, Facebook resources that do live in Europe, so I can just ping somebody and say, Hey, have you ever been to Madrid? <laughs> have you ridden the subway there? Did you do it twenty years ago? Because that would be more helpful. <laughs> 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 but so that's one reason I'm actually considering taking the trip to Germany or Austria instead of Ireland is because I've got a couple of friends that do live in Germany and Austria. I'm like, that would be so much easier. I've <laughs> got people that live there now and are my age, so they might remember it from being teenagers.
0: Right. So what other than people who live in the place where you are looking, what other resources have you drawn on for that kind of research?
1: A lot of Google. I'm I'm mostly just like running through as much Google and like Wikipedia as I can because uh, fortunately I'm not needing a lot of details. I'm mostly just needing the feels of places because that's one thing that's really liberating about novellas is I don't have a lot of space to do all these big descriptions and really have the the setting necessarily be a character like uh, like like Serenity is and Firefly. I mean that ship is its own character. I don't mm-hmm. really get that freedom here. I mostly just need the feel of the places. So I'm able to get a lot of that, just the, um, atmosphere from pictures, you know, new, old, whatever. Um, so fortunately for the most part, Google does a lot for me. Cool. So why
0: don't you tell us a little bit about your writing regimen? Do you write every day? What kind of environment do you use? Et cetera, et cetera.
1: I am very fortunate that my day job is not as mentally draining as it used to be so I'm able to write every day and um, the call center where I work has a quiet room that is literally on the other side of a wall from my cubicle so on my lunch break I can just zip right over there as soon as I go on my lunch break zip around that wall go in there pull out my laptop and write for a good 45-50 minutes before I have to come back to work, which again, it only takes me two minutes to get back to my desk. So I'm, I'm guaranteed at least 45 minutes of good writing time in the middle of the day. Sometimes my job is so dead that I'm able to kind of scribble a paragraph here and there. But I do do the best I can to write at least a thousand words every day. Some days, I mean, it, it, it averages out. Some days are better than others, especially if I'm revising. I mean, you don't really generate a whole lot of words that way. But I spend at least at the very least an hour every day just at my lunch break, and then anything else I get is bonus. Fortunately, I'm actually a pretty fast writer. i can I think I've actually whipped out two thousand words in an hour before, not wow. saying that they were any good. but i can I can be very prolific, which you can't edit a blank page, so going through on revisions is always better than just sitting down and writing for me.
0: Um, and the worst the worst words are the ones that you don't write,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: I have noticed that on the magic spreadsheet, you have an entry about two spaces above or below mine to keep track of your daily word counts and you haven't been using it. Are you ever coming back? I miss you.
1: Um, I gave that up. I'm wanting, to, it was a couple of years ago because I had an amazing streak that ended up getting broken because I went to Disney world. I've actually since just started tracking it on my own personal spreadsheet where I, um, I'm not, I don't necessarily keep, they get the streak, but I can keep track of, I keep track of the project I'm working on, how many words I get on, on an individual project every day. And then I just average my words for the month that way. So it's just, it just got to a point where that spreadsheet was, the magic spreadsheet was getting too laggy for me.
2: Mm. <laughs> and
1: I was spending, I was like sitting here, like spending five minutes trying to update the magic spreadsheet. and like, I could have written a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not looking too terribly likely that I'll be back. If I did and I went back and retroactively entered all my writing, <laughs> It would probably be pretty scary because <laughs> I've got I've got um, my own personal spreadsheet back to 2014. So pretty much right after I left the magic spreadsheet, actually, I think during while I was at the magic spreadsheet, I was I had started my own. But it also really helps tracking that way because I can see when I started writing a particular novel and when I finally wrote the last the last of it. So, I can mm. see how long it took me to write a draft. Like, I've got a trilogy that's going to come out the end of 2018, 2019, 2020 through the Ed Greenwood Group. And the second book of it, I just finished uh, a month ago, the first draft. And I think it took me almost exactly six months to write that first draft. So, just having that, like, okay, trying to help just kind of helps me meet deadlines better to know exactly how much to expect with my writing pace. Um, and, which was, like I said, a little bit more specific than the magic spreadsheet just the general word count so mm-hmm. I, I do miss it i miss seeing all those points
0: <laughs>
1: but nah no nah, i don't think i'm coming back
0: so you mentioned something that leads into my next question which is about your next project that you're going to be working on
1: <laughs> that doesn't even take in consideration all the products i'm working on now chris because well, tell I'm us cur- about those too <laughs> Okay, um, the second Luke novella, I'm, don't put this in concrete, but the second Luke novella, which is Assassin's Rival, is hopefully going to be out uh, in January 2017. I'm currently writing the third one, which is Killer Assassin, and I'm hoping that one's going to be out probably third, late third, early fourth quarter of 2017. Like I said, I've got seven plans so far, so I'm I'm making progress. I'm also working on, like I said, this trilogy for the Ed Greenwood group. Which the What's three books. What's that about? Um, this is a setting. I'm actually not sure how much I can talk because I am under NDA. It's a oh. science fiction. It's a science fiction game of tag gone wrong. I can tell you that much. Okay. And the titles of the three books are: the first one is called Lord Escort. The second one is called Polly Wampus and the Warble Marbles, which I just love saying. And the third one is called what Breaking. What was that News. again? <laughs> Polly Wampus and the Warble Marbles.
0: Got it. And the third.
1: <laughs> and the third one's called Breaking News. Hang on, I'm just going to write this in the chat because it's awesome. Um, but it's that the second one. I just I was I wasn't even planning on making this a trilogy. Um, nah, Warble. I made that plural. But um, I wasn't. I was just going to be a standalone book, and then I started some of the details I was coming up with in this first book. I was like, oh my gosh, I've like created this whole band and they've got all this music that keeps on getting mentioned. I need to write a behind the music. So I've written a science fiction behind the music book, which is what that one is. And then I'm like, well, now I have to close the trilogy. So I made more work for myself <laughs> than I needed to. Other projects going on right now, I have a YA fantasy novel that has, has two working titles because I haven't even settled on a real title yet that is all exploring fate versus free will in Mm -hmm. one young teenager boy's life and also involves fairies hoping to have hoping to have that released by the end of 2016 and then i have a fantasy courtroom drama that i've been working on for a few years that if doesn't get picked up by a publisher publisher an agent by the end of this year i'm just going to publish next year and be done with it but that one's called criminal from birth and that's kind of been my pet project for a while. As far as next stuff I'm going to be writing, I have a novel that I'm planning once I get this YA and Criminal from Birth uh, off my plate. It's a fantasy about a priest who has been away preaching for 30 years. So he's like 50, 55 years old. And he finally comes home to his country, which is theocratic, only to discover that the god that he's worshipped his entire life has been killed. Oops! Don't you hate it when that happens? Ugh. <laughs> so
0: inconvenient,
1: but that's uh that's that my working title on that is faithful. So I'm I'm looking forward to really writing that one.
0: But it's still a theocracy, so the the deity's position has been usurped by someone else. Um, it was
1: a multiple theocracy. Oh, okay. So they, so he's just one of the two gods, and he has been killed and replaced. And the priest's name is Wit. He's he's not happy about it.
0: No, one wouldn't be. I would no. imagine. Yeah. So Gus, you've um. You appeared this past Balticon in uh, Jared Axelrod's panel, Queering the Feed, mm-hmm. about writing LGBT characters. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about sort of the, the personal roots of that for you and how and why and where you incorporate LGBT characters into your, mm-hmm. your fiction.
1: Um, well, for those of you who don't know me, I am agender. I'm not necessarily genderqueer, I just figure I kind of fit both genders while at the same time fitting neither, so that has considering homosexuality and heterosexuality that's all based on what your gender is, so I can't really apply either of those labels to myself because my gender doesn't fit so it, it just lots <laughs> of confusion there This is <laughs> why I
0: like the um the terms that I use in in Baltimore City, which are androsexual and gynosexual
1: mm hmm so I'm uh, figuring gynosexual would be attracted to women. Correct. I am a gynosexual dude. I will re- I actually I need to I need to use that. Um <laughs> just, just oh my god, it makes so much more sense. I didn't even think <laughs> about it. Yes. I am an agender gynosexual. I am totally like that is awesome. But so having been so ridiculous um I was convinced I was transgender for mm-hmm. I'm 32 for probably 29 years of my life because i mean my, some of my first memories are of wishing i weren't a girl wishing i hadn't been born female but going into men's bathrooms is just as weird mm-hmm. so having that much confusion and that kind of hatred towards labels really makes me i'm trying to think how to put this it just makes me super aware of my character's masculinity and femininity. And while at the same time not defining them by it, because mm. um, I didn't create Luke, but Luke is bisexual. John told me that off the bat, and I'm like, oh, I actually didn't pick that up in the Stafford Chronicles. But then again, he's not a main character, so it hasn't really come up yet. Right. But it's given me a lot to play with as far as his, his upbringing is concerned um, and writing his story, his romances. I'm getting too expl- – I don't really write a whole lot of relationships in my books. I'm I'm mostly being so agender and not actually part of the dating scene right now. It's very hard for me to find romance that critical to living. So I don't put it in my novels that much, but I need to do that with Luke because he has relationships, and as an assassin, you know, that's a great way to get close to somebody. It's true. <laughs> so it's actually helping me spread my wings that way as far as my other projects i don't know that i've actually put a whole lot of obviously lgbtqia whatever i i, I can't even oh, remember bag. all. Of <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like i said i haven't knowingly put a whole lot in my books i mean um in criminal from birth geez my main character Silen, he is in his 30s he's a virgin I was mm-hmm. like, I've done, I've done some weirdness that way. I just, you know, when I first started writing that book, his sexuality never crossed my mind because for me, a lot of that kind of stuff doesn't. I mean, in my personal life, it does, don't get me wrong, but in my characters, I'm like, why does that have to be important to them? So it's it's kind of iffy. It's kind of weird for me that way because I've actually started reading romance and hope that I might, I don't know, spark that in my head and actually make some relationships happen, you know? But... Personally, I don't see how writing, say you know a, a gay male you know two gay guys romance or just relationship is going to be that different from writing a male female. one well, I mean they're people mm-hmm. I don't think that and honestly for me, that's the thing that gets me the most is just that they don't think that we're people. they think that they know uh, pretty much anybody that mentions it in the media <laughs> um mm-hmm. just in in general, so many people think you know well, as a gay person, how what do you think of this? Well, you know, I don't go around thinking. As an agender gynosexual, what do I think of this? I think, as, as me, what do I think of this? It's just, I, I personally hate the labels, and yet I'm constantly labeling myself. So it's. <laughs> I think that this
0: comes back to the era of second wave feminism and that slogan, the personal is political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we got into this mentality where diversity of gender orientation. Etc. was to define people by it. And like, mm-hmm. you couldn't, you couldn't be a, a feminist without it shaping every aspect of your personal life and your personal life being a commentary on your politics mm-hmm. and it's become the same way for sexual orientation and gender identity and all the rest of it.
1: Now, I'm, I'm not going to lie when I was in my teen years and up into my mid twenties, I could get pretty hostile about people not using male pronouns with me just because the female didn't feel right. The male pronouns have always felt more neutral to me, which we could get into a whole conversation about that. Right. Um, but it, you know, it finally got to the point where, you know, once I finally realized I wasn't actually transgender, I was agender. I'm like, you know what? Call me what you think I am. I'm just more comfortable that way because because I don't mind the singular they. I have a lot of friends who have called me it forever, and I think it's hilarious. It Um, seems
0: very (laughs) (laughs) dehumanizing,
1: but it doesn't bother me. Well, my sense of humor is ridiculous. I mean, I think it's hilarious anyway. The singular they doesn't bother me, despite being a little bit of a grammar Nazi myself. But the the x i e z e pronouns, Mm -hmm. those great on me. To me, those just seem pretentious. But that's just my personal preference you can call me he I'll answer you can call me she I'll answer either way it doesn't feel right to me but I want you to be comfortable I mean, if you're not comfortable I'm not comfortable mm-hmm. that's just my personal preference when I think of myself I tend to think he but I mean I'm not going to go get any anything added <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't need the accessories I've got enough problems with that, without all that mess <laughs> <laughs> trust me it's nothing but trouble <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it What's funny though is uh, I'm the middle child of 3, my older brother and my younger sister for years. Now, we were raised Catholic.
0: <laughs> oh boy. My
1: my brother and sister for ages have called me their girl brother or boy sister,
2: <laughs>
1: which I'm like, it's accurate, but my parents hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but but they they've they've come to terms with it, so it's it's all good, but just I'm like boy sister. It's about right. I mean, I was my brother's best man. Two sets of quotation marks, so I mean, so, I mean it, it's all good. I don't see why that, you know people can't do that more often. Why does it have to be you know all that traditional crap? But we digress. You had another question.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask. You'd mentioned that you were very aware of your character's gender identity while not defining them by it. Mm-hmm. So, what when you're fleshing out a character for the first time, like what are the the qualities or sort of like the the perceptual filters and lenses that you use to define their worldview since so much of in our world so much of our identity and so much of our our perceptual bias is affected by the filter of our gender identity.
1: Fortunately writing fantasy I can do whatever the hell I want. (laughs) with worldviews, but I always end up starting with there's always a character who is in some way loosely based on me, personality-wise, not necessarily gender-wise. So that's kind of always my keystone. Whether it's a main character or not, there's always somebody who I can say, okay, this is how I see everything. And so I can take my world, look at how I view stuff, even if that character doesn't make it in the final draft, and I can say, okay, here's the people around him. And lately, it's not always a him, which is showing how I've grown. Um, <laughs> but I say, you know, here's here's the people around him. Here are the fr- Here are his friends. Here's the hero. Here's his relationship to the hero. And then, based on my own personal relationships with the people around me—co-workers, friends, acquaintances, strangers—I can start to build my other characters. I actually use a lot of inspiration again just bits and pieces from people i know i mean my best friend and the co-host of my podcast aaron she's always in there somewhere and she's her she's been guys women you know guys girls everything in my worlds I'm not saying that my characters are all cookie cutter because they're not i, I just take i just pick and choose because like oh, i'm trying to think what i've done uh an impetigo it's been so long since I've read the book, I can't remember his name. <laughs> but the character that was me was a side character, and he was the the part of me that actually will go out and do stuff. Whereas in my YA fantasy that's about to come out, the character that is based on me, she, she's she's brave, but she's more the clever part of me. So it's like, I, I, I really base so much on my own worldview, which can be really limiting, but... You know, I'll, I have the same problem as other people. I can look at somebody on TV and go, wait a second, is that a guy or a girl? And so then I project that perception onto them, which obviously that person knows what they are. They know who they are. And I'm like, okay, so if I'm in their head that way, that's what the world looks like. Okay. So it's like, I take my perception first and then, and then just project it out and then let it evolve. So that's a lot of what I do.
0: Okay. What would you say is your biggest strength as a writer?
1: I've actually asked other people this and I totally agree with them. I can transport you. I can give you the real sense of where you are and that you're not, you know, sitting in a chair or sitting on a bus reading. I make the world happen around you, but without taking 10 pages to describe a windowsill like Jane Austen. Um, <laughs> I, I can take you know the small, the smaller details and paint the bigger picture with them. So your imagination does the rest. So I, I, I've been told and, and having read stuff that I wrote you know, five years ago that I haven't seen in so long, I can at least make settings come alive. I can make the world itself happen around you.
0: And what is, what's the biggest challenge or, or difficulty that you're having with your writing that you're working to overcome right now?
1: Dialogue. I can write good snappy dialogue, but all my characters sound the same. Hmm. My dialogue, I end up writing very, very formally. So giving people different voices is something I've been working on for a couple of years now. And it's cuz uh, cuz I don't want the last thing I want is for my characters to suddenly start sounding uh, everybody's got an accent. Everybody doesn't need to have an accent. Some yes, but you don't necessarily need to write that they have an accent. You don't need to have all the, you know, instead of ing i apostrophe. Mm-hmm. I don't like I don't want to be gimmicky. But just right. giving people their own different speech patterns. That's harder for me because I'm not a very good listener.
0: (laughs) And what are you doing to overcome that?
1: A lot of what I've been doing is just basically uh, a couple different exercises. I'll write out my conversation and then I'll carry it around with me in my head now that I know what's being said by who. And if I'm, say, talking to you, I'll be thinking, okay, this is the next thing that this person says. And I'll try to think of it how you would say it. Or just write out, some people are going to, you know, use the fanciest vocabulary they've got. Mm-hmm. See if I can fancy up a sentence and just find out what works that way. Or think about, you know, what this person's upbringing was. Would they be using the slang or would they be more like me and enunciating everything? <laughs> and I, honestly, I watch a lot of TV because everybody has different speech patterns. And it just really and, and actually watching a lot of like TV shows I'm really familiar with, so I'm not trying to follow plot. I can just focus on how they're talking that's really helped a lot actually
0: and do you take notes
1: when you do that i am not a note taker i get too cluttered that way um so much of what i do is up here I'm, I'm, i tend to be more intuitive so my brain files everything away but i don't necessarily know what's there until i need it and mm-hmm. then i'm like oh I knew this and then just go use that. It's It can be frustrating because sometimes I can't call up the information I need. And then I'm like in the middle of writing, I'm like, Oh yeah, I needed to do that. It's like my brain is, is its own alarm system. It can be frustrating, but it's also, it also can be kind of hilarious because people ask me questions and I'll answer and be like, wait, how did I know that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so where can we find your stuff? And you know where? Can, how can we get this book?
1: Yes, um, you can find me anywhere. You can find AF Grappin. That's A-F-G-R-A-P-P-I-N. You'll find me, afgrappin.com, uh, Twitter at AF My Facebook page is AF My email is afgrappin at gmail.com. You can find uh, links to all the books, including the new the new one, on afgrappin.com under the library tab. You can find Empedigo, and Mere Acquaintances on Smashwords. Mere Acquaintances is free there. So if you want Mere Acquaintances, just go there for that one. Empedigo and, and Mere Acquaintances are also both on Amazon, but I think they're 99 cents there. Trials of Halleck, I'm working on getting out. Luke Bertrand is available for pre-order on Amazon and only through Amazon right now because it's only coming out on ebook right now. And also, got a shout out, The Melting Podcast. P-O-T-C-A-S-T dot com. That's my podcast. We release episodes twice every month. Me and my best friend. And it's all based on writing. We do short stories, flash fiction, bloopers, interviews with people like you. Yeah. We've had this fancy man on the show.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Raven and the Writing Desk, Gus. Good luck with the book.
1: It has been a pleasure, sir.
0: And that was our interview. I hope you enjoyed it. W. Somerset Maugham said, Only a mediocre person is always at his best. With that in mind, let's see how well I'm currently doing in my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 9,230 words this week over the course of 11.25 hours for an average writing speed of 820 words per hour. As of Saturday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone twelve days without breaking my chain. This week I made the most of my long weekend, and spent nearly all of Saturday working on The Lost and the Least. I had made it a point to spend most of Friday getting everything cleaned up and put away after Thanksgiving, and with plenty of leftovers in the fridge and all the laundry done, there was nothing to keep me from devoting myself to writing. I'm now in chapter thirty-nine and the manuscript is up over 128,000 words. This week I also started the planning process for a new trilogy of novels. Those of you who are long-time listeners of my work will probably remember a story that I wrote for Pip Ballantyne's Erotica a la Carte podcast. The story was called Tears Such as Angels Weep, and it was about an apocalyptic world where the use of forbidden techno-magic has broken open the seals between Earth and Hell. Now demons have possessed human hosts in order to conquer the world, while angels have sent their own representatives to Earth to help organize a resistance. We only saw this world in broad strokes during that short story, but for a while now I felt like there was more to tell in that world, and I think I've finally got the seed of the story for it. I now decided that I want to tell a family saga in this world, following the humans who witnessed the Earth's fall, organize the resistance, and eventually work to banish the demons back to hell. The three books will be called Breaking Hell, Walking Earth, and Saving Paradise. This story is still in its very, very early planning stages, so don't expect to see anything for a while, but I'm excited to have another series to work on when I'm not writing Metamorph. And now, the feedback. Rosemary wrote in with her reaction to Chapter 23, She says, Zeke ate that guy's face. (sighs) He has tentacles. He could have easily crushed the life out of the guy, or broken his neck, or back, or all kinds of things. But he chose to bite off the bad guy's face, and he had a good time doing it. The idea of Zeke as a vigilante anti-hero type is a little horrifying. I think I'm with Kate on this one. Wow. Just wow. Unquote. Hey Rosemary, as you've now heard, you were not the only one who was horrified at what Zeke has become. Hal sure had some choice words for him, didn't he? One of the best comments I got from my beta readers on this story was that Hal needed to confront Zeke about all he had lost because of Zeke's arrogance and stupidity. It was pretty cathartic for me to write that confrontation, too. There's definitely a darkness in Zeke that hasn't gone away, and it will be interesting to see what he chooses to do going forward. Cameron wrote me a long feedback letter, which I'll summarize here. He says that he found my show through Nobilis Erotica and I Should Be Writing. He's working as a delivery driver, so in just a few weeks he's burned through most of the archives and just started listening to Things Unseen. He noted that there were a lot of similarities between my journey and his own, including the fact that we both worked as science teachers for a number of years and then had to change careers— He's also getting ready to release an epic fantasy story of his own, and after listening to Metamore City, he wants to release it as a podcast. One thing Cameron particularly appreciated about Metamore is the way that I handle science in the setting. He writes, In particular, I really appreciate the viable, no pun intended, biology that you inject into your writing. Entirely too many sci-fi authors go out of their way to make their physics plausible, but then completely blow off the biology— there's never all that much of it in one place, but it pops up often enough to be worth remarking on. Unquote. Thanks, Cameron. As a biologist by training, I guess it's natural that I think about my character's biology in more detail than usual. After all, the science has to make sense to me, or it's just going to sit at the back of my head and bug me until I figure it out. Cameron was also interested in Harrison, the Grace's family butler from Dreams of Change and the Three Graces. He writes... I was flabbergasted by your admission that you didn't have a history for Harrison. After his relatively small role in Dreams of Change, I felt like he was screaming for a backstory. By the middle of Three Graces, I assumed that he was some kind of subordinate to Allura, either a Thrall or Scion, and was there as a spy or watchdog of some flavor. His response to Nathan that Elora was dead immediately after the church's collapse seemed to reinforce that, that he got some kind of mental snapback when the connection was severed by her death. But then Amelie didn't seem to get anything like that either, which wasn't covered until the episode after your admission. Either way, her death would free him from her control, and he would then stay with the graces of his own volition, a secure, respected position where he's taking care of people he cares for. I haven't gone back over any of it yet with this in mind, but I can't think of anything I've heard to indicate Harrison is distinctly either human or vampire. The only time I can think of that he's been out of the house was to rescue Natalie, and that was after dark. I don't remember any mention of windows in their penthouse, but their absence would also fit, since the Graces would have acquired those quarters, and Harrison, after Ellura had begun grooming Amelie for conversion. Unquote. That's a very interesting theory, Cameron. Like I said, I don't know where Harrison came from, or why he has the particular set of skills that he does. I think this is something I'd like to sit down and discuss with his creator, Nobilis, before I tried to flesh it out. I always supposed that Harrison was a badass mortal, and that his abilities came from years of training and exceptional talent, but it's certainly possible that he was enhanced in some way, or that he has some touch of supernatural blood that isn't common knowledge. It's clear that he and Allura know and respect each other, but apart from that, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Thanks for writing in. Andrew MacArthur writes, I have been mainlining Metamore City for about two months now, after I had heard your work on the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers audiobook, and I have been sharing the stories with my wife because I like it so much. I'm wondering, though, if I'm missing a story or two, because I can't seem to remember any characters in your universe... With the third aspect of the curse of Metamorph City. For a group of people that are twice as numerous as vampires, I'm surprised that so little is said about the pedomorphs. I'm really only paying attention to them because of this lack of perceived information or focus. Unquote. Hi Andrew. You're right, we haven't seen any pedomorphs yet in my stories. Pedomorphs are relatively rare, only about 4% of the population of Metamorph City. You're correct that they are more common than vampires, but the vampires are a politically powerful faction, with a lot of mortal followers, so they end up being important to the plot. The age-regressed are scattered, and there's no one unifying political force that ties them all together, so they haven't played a role yet in my bigger storyline. I do have a pedomorph character in The Lost and the Least, a friend of Callie Linder, who gives her some important information. Nobilis Reed was also working on a pedomorph story the last time I checked. I'm not sure if he's released it yet or not. If I'm being honest, I wasn't sure what to do with The Age Regressed when I first started writing in Metamorph City. But now that the world is more fleshed out, it may be worth taking a second look at them. Andrew continued with a set of questions about pedomorphs, which I'll answer here. 1. Can Petomorphs carry a child to term? Yes, they can. A pedomorph's maximum age is about 14 to 15 years old, so they can get pregnant and carry to term, though the pregnancies tend to be a little riskier than average. Once the pregnancy is advanced far enough, the pregnant pedomorph loses the ability to regress to a prepubescent age, becoming locked in that form, in the same way that a pregnant androgyne becomes locked in female form. The developing soul in the fetus creates a sort of magical interference which resists being shifted out of existence. Number two, are there support systems in place within the city for pedomorphs? Is there a pedomorph enclave? This is something I think Nobilis was planning to address with his story, so I'm going to hold off on answering until I see what he wrote. Number three, do pedomorphs regress mentally as well as physically? Well, sort of. Pedomorphs don't lose their capacity for adult cognition any more than theriomorphs lose their sentience in animal form. However, they do sometimes have trouble controlling their emotions, and they become much more impulsive and unfocused the further back they regress. This is comparable to the animal instincts that a theriomorph experiences. Number four: Do pedomorphs go to school? Not generally, no. Compulsory education only applies to actual children, not to people who look like children. Sometimes, however, law enforcement and spy agencies will use pedomorphs to do undercover operations while pretending to be children, and in that case, they would have to go to school in order to maintain their cover. Number five, do pedomorphs enjoy the same legal privileges as other citizens of Metamorph City? Can they fly skimmers? Can they legally rent or own property? Yes, yes, and yes. As long as your calendar age and your identification prove that you are legally of age, you have all the rights and privileges of any other adult. Number six. Do pedomorphs employ nannies? Sometimes, yes. Some pedomorphs gravitate toward an apparent age that is younger than the maximum, so they may spend most of their time seeming to be, say, 9 or 10 instead of 14 or 15. Since their apparent age affects their impulse control, they sometimes like to have an adult supervisor on hand, in case they forget themselves. Also, pedomorphs can do the same trick as androgynes or theriomorphs, where they temporarily resume an adult form, but they then have to pay it back by reverting to the opposite form for an equal amount of time. For a pedomorph, that means temporarily becoming an infant. So if a pedomorph really, really has to be an adult for a while— They'll need to hire a babysitter to look after them while they're regressed. Number seven. Do pedomorphs enjoy a longer life expectancy than normal human beings? Sort of. When you first take the curse, you get a one-time reset on your body's aging clock. A mundane, elderly human who becomes a pedomorph will have their youth restored. And this is a real, permanent change. But this doesn't make you immortal. Your real form starts to age again immediately. Even though this change is hidden by the curse. Eventually, this strain catches up with the pedomorph, and in the last few years of life, their bodies deteriorate rapidly. You remember that movie about Benjamin Button, the guy who aged backwards? Remember what he looked like in the first half an hour or so of the movie? An old pedomorph looks something like that. Number eight, can pedomorphs use magic at all? Some of them, yes. Being a pedomorph doesn't affect your capacity for majory one way or another. If you have the talent to be a wizard or a sorcerer, you can develop that talent and the curse won't get in your way. If you don't, you can't. (whistles) Number nine, do pedomorphs lose memory when they regress? If they regress all the way to being an infant, they can lose the ability to remember complex things. Not because the memories aren't there, but because they're too distractible to be able to focus on them and think about them. Once they return to a more moderate form, the memories will be accessible again. And finally, number 10. What are some of the reasons a person would choose this aspect of the curse? The most common reason is because they belong to one of the old families of Metamorph, and an important pedomorph is one of their ancestors. Just like House Brightleaf is made of foxmorphs, and House Matthias is made of ratmorphs, there are Metamorians who are descended from great heroes who were age The other big reason people take this curse is because they're afraid of growing old, or because they've already grown old and they want a new lease on life. Most people aren't willing to accept the inconvenience that comes with this curse, though, which is why it remains so rare. Face it, even if you're legally able to do things like buy alcohol or go for a drive, if you don't look like you should be able to, you're going to end up getting stopped and asked a lot of questions a lot of the time. So, for most people, being a pedomorph just isn't worth the hassle. Great questions, Andrew. Thanks for writing in.
2: Hey, Chris. This is Nobilis Reed. I just finished listening to Things Unseen, and I am quite impressed with the wrap-up. I am not good at writing endings. I wrestle heavily with them, and even when I get something I feel satisfied with, I don't feel that I have something good. This was a good ending. It reminds me that an ending ought to, if not resolve, at least address all of the themes that were brought up in the story. And uh, you did that, and you did it really well. And uh, thank you for sharing this with us.
0: Thanks, Nobilis. It took some extra work to get this ending right, and I want to especially thank one of my beta readers, Abby Hilton, for giving me some great advice that helped me to make the ending better.
2: I particularly like how there's consequences for a police officer who kills someone in the line of duty. Even if they're not punished for it, even if it was a justified death, there's still an investigation and there's still consequences.
0: Yeah, it was important to me to show that realistically. That's the way it's supposed to work when a cop kills someone, but it's something that gets swept under the rug in a lot of stories about cops. It set things up nicely for the next book, though, so I was glad to face it head-on here.
2: And that whole thing with regard to Metamore City's government and administration just brings up all kinds of thoughts these days with regard to you know, nobility and what they get away with, that, that whole section was really struck home for me.
0: Yeah, for me too. And I think those parts feel even more relevant now than they were when I wrote it in 2013. One of the things I like about writing in Metamore is that I'm able to explore issues around social class without the confounding factor of race, which you just can't separate from class issues in America or in any other post-colonial society. Explorations of race and class are both equally important, but I think race is something a lot of American writers have got a handle on, while class is something we tend not to think about very clearly. These issues of class privilege and social stratification are ones that I'll be returning to in future stories in Metamore.
2: So I wanted to uh, just thank you for everything you've given us with this. I'm curious to see what you do next, considering you're not done with the next novel.
0: Good question. Next week, I'm going to start airing Divide by Zero, a novella from the Divine Intervention story collection. That story will be told in five parts, and I'm taking Christmas and New Year's off from podcasting, so the last part of that story will air on January 15th. Then I'm going to air a two-parter called Maternal Instinct, which will take us through the end of January. After that, we'll see. I have a few stories sitting around in various states of completion, so maybe I'll finish up some of those and get them out in the feed. I'll give you more information when I have it.
2: And if I was in between projects, I'd probably write some Metamorph City stuff right now because I'm feeling really charged up about it. Uh, one question that I did not feel got resolved was what happened to Artax? Presumably, if this matter is resolved, then the intelligence service no longer needs to talk to him. And so he could come back out of hiding wherever he is. That would seem to me to be an appropriate result of what's going on here, but maybe there's a reason for him to stay in hiding. And I'm totally not asking because he'd be a great character included in a story that I have half written. (laughs) I have absolutely no ulterior motives in that at all. (laughs) So anyways, thank you again, and um, I look forward to the next episode.
0: What happened to Artax is something that I plan to address in a short story hopefully soon. While it's true that the situation with Misty is resolved, remember that Artax tampered with the evidence at a crime scene. That is a serious felony under both imperial and local laws. In Title 18 of the United States Code, for example, tampering with evidence is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Now, Count Holloway is the Minister of Intelligence, not the Minister of Justice so he doesn't have direct authority to prosecute crimes. However, Halloway is an influential man with a lot of connections, so if he decides to make an example of Artax, there are a lot of strings that he could pull to make that happen. Halloway is also in the position to target Artax as a suspected enemy of the Empire, since Artax admitted that he was covering up something powerful that he didn't want Halloway, or anyone else, to get their hands on. There's a lot that an intelligence service can do to mess up your life if you're labeled a suspected terrorist. In short, Artax will return, but he's going to be working undercover for a while. His shop won't be advertised publicly anymore, nor will it be in its usual location, but I suspect that some folks will find themselves wandering into it just when they happen to need it. How is that possible? Well, because he's a wizard, that's how. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is ethereus. E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S If you like what I'm doing with the show, leave a review on iTunes. It really helps new listeners to find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.